in the practice of meditation, in the practice of like pranayama, is cultivating an inner kind voice. When we notice our mind has wandered, a thought is coming instead of being like, oh, I'm so bad. I'm so, why can't I control my mind? I did it again. I'm a bad meditator. And it's like, no. Instead, it's that, okay, the mind has wandered. The awareness has been built with grace and compassion. We bring the mind back to the breath. You know, it's a pattern and it's an opportunity. So every time the mind has wandered, we've built that awareness. Oh, hey, my mind has wandered. Let me with that grace and compassion, with that kindness for myself, bring the mind back to the breath. And for me, what a beautiful practice of nonviolence where we're not berating ourselves. Um, There's enough people external to us that would be ready to berate us or say negative things appreciate don't appropriate the gifts our ancestors did create we're all in this together to understand true is better hello and welcome to decolonizing wellness the podcast a place for people who want to engage in wellness practices with integrity. I'm your host, Jyoti, and I'm the founder of my wellness company, a yoga teacher, menstrual cycle coach, holistic wellness educator, and eternal student. Now, the wellness space is rooted in cultural appropriation, in whitewashing, in westernization, And it's completely disregarded the origins and roots of the wellness practices that it profits from. My own journey of decolonizing wellness and decolonizing my mind has been and continues to be revolutionary. And that's why I've created this podcast, a safe space to explore indigenous wellness practices with the people from the cultures that they originate from. We're going to be delving into the history and roots of the practices, how we can appreciate rather than appropriate, and how, once we know better, we can and must do better. Hello, and welcome back to the podcast. Today, I am joined by Harbinder Mann, a yoga teacher, mindfulness educator, and community builder. We are going to be talking about taking yoga off the mat. So how can we take our sadhana, our practice off the mat and how can we incorporate the eight limb path into our everyday? And the way that Harpinda describes this is so beautiful, so empowering and so invigorating and I know that you are all going to love it. It's left me wanting to learn so much more and I hope it will do the same for you. So without further ado, Here's Harbinder. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Decolonizing Wellness, the podcast. Today, I have the incredible Harbinder with us, and we are going to be talking about all things yoga. Hi, Harbinder. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you so much for having me here. Um, I am truly just so excited Um, And so grateful to be here having this conversation. Mm, Yeah, I'm so excited to be talking to you. We were just saying before we press record, it feels like it's been a long time coming. So (laughs) 
yeah, it feels really good to to be able to have this space. Um, so could you begin by letting the listeners know a little bit about you? Um, yeah, who you are, what, what work you do in the world and how are you doing today as well? Yeah. Um, so my name is Harpinder Corman. I am a yoga teacher, a mindfulness educator, a community builder living on Tongva land. Um, so colonially known as Los Angeles. Um, today I feel good. I've been leading a series called um, Building a Pranayama Sadhana. And today was day nine. Um, and we explored um, some breath techniques that were a bit more cooling. So I definitely felt myself calming down. Um, and yeah, I feel, I feel really excited to be here in terms of my work. So I work primarily with folks of color one-on-one. Um, so I work anywhere with students I've had for a year and a half. I work with students for a year. Um, and it's understanding yoga as a spiritual practice, as a path of liberation, as moksha. And incorporating the eight limbs of yoga, so looking at the yamas, niyamas, um, and it's all in effort so that my students can really connect into their to their self, so that they can connect into their intuition, to their wisdom, so that can, that they can feel like how truly powerful that they are, and find that freedom for themselves. Um, these practices and tools that we have are just so beautiful. Um, and there are ways for us to be able to understand like who are like who am I? Like what am I meant to do here? Um, and I found my way onto this path um, around like college and I went to India. I was a director of marketing at a startup. Um, and it was really truly when I went to India, and we can touch on this more later, when I went to India and started practicing at the Ananda Sangha, that I was like, whoa, like this is what yoga is. It's this like true devotion, connection to spirit. It's this like being in community. It's meditation. Um, it's not just like at that time when I went to UCLA, I was attending like core power yoga works. Um, <laughs> and I was like, what is this? Um, like, like it was particularly, I think core power like walking in, everyone's at least like four inches taller than me. And I'm not short, like very thin, wearing their Lululemon, aloe yoga. Yeah. I'm like a bro college student at the time. So I have on like probably my high school PE shirt on, <laughs> just like Adidas shorts. And like the room that I was in was so steamy that I could barely see like past my mat. And everyone's doing these very complicated poses. And I just didn't feel like I belonged. Like I'm pretty sure I was also the only person of color in that room. And I think for me, it's like for, for my own practice as well, because we can't be teachers or practitioners without having a sadhana. But it's about how do we really share about yoga from its roots and its true purpose and its goal and not just what's shown in the West as like, oh, it's this like fancy exercise for wealthy white women. Um, it's like, that's not what it is. Um, so I feel very grateful that I can, I, I can continue to practice and to be on this path and to have such wonderful teachers that have shared their wisdom and knowledge with me um, and to have my like ancestral connection that now I get to share this with my students um, and show them like what yoga truly is and the true goals and purposes. 
Mm, that's so beautiful and I can relate to a lot of what you said. Um, so thank you for sharing that with us. You mentioned the word sadhana. So for anyone listening who might not have heard that word or might not know what it means, could you just tell us what it means? Absolutely. So sadhana is our spiritual practice. And it's our spiritual practice that we commit to with dedication, with devotion. There's also the ideas from the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali of Vyagriya and uh, Abhyasa. So that's practice and non-attachment. So how do we say disciplined with devotion on our sadhana with that consistent practice and without being attached to the results? Um, and so in the pranayama, building a pranayama sadhana that I'm leading, it's this understanding of like, there are different spiritual practices, you know, there's like praying, there is the movement, um, there is sitting down in front of our altar, if we have one, there's journaling, there's being out in nature. But how is that something we continue to commit to, so that we remember the true essence of who we are, instead of assuming false identities, instead of assuming I am just a worker, I am just a wife, and if I don't perform well at those things, then I'm a bad person. Um, instead, it's like, how is how do I keep coming back to my home, keep coming back to the true essence of who I actually am, being self, that is eternal, that is timeless, that is safe, full of joy, peace, love, and keep coming back to that understanding so that even through in life, there's ebbs and flows and highs and lows that we keep coming back to that place of like, my soul, myself is eternal. I will always be okay. Um, and what a beautiful way through our sadhana, our spiritual practice, we keep coming back to that place. I'm always okay. I'm always okay. Um, and the way that I practice my sadhana for myself, it's every morning. So I wake up at 6.20 a.m., and <laughs> I've always been like this, um, but I came back from India um, over a month ago now. And there, there's at the ashrams, very established sadhana practice times. And for me, it's from 6.20 a.m. to 8 a.m. I don't look at my phone besides to turn my alarm off. I don't snooze it. Um, and then I start journaling. I then take time to move through asana. I do um, a neti pot um, Jolly Kriya. I then do my own pranayama practices, um, meditate, and only then when I feel truly established in a place of um, peace and feeling like strong, then I go out into the world. Um, because we know there's so much chaos, like there's so much things that can really bring us down. It's like, how do we build that strength for ourselves so that we can like, when we hear about news like the the murder, like the murders in Buffalo, where we're able to be there for our own suffering, but be able to hold the suffering of other people without getting overwhelmed mm. and to be able to attend to the suffering of ourselves and to the suffering of the collective of others. We have to be emotionally, spiritually strong. And that's where that sadhana comes in. Um, so that we can tend to that suffering and we don't run away from it because we can't handle it. We can't take it. 
yeah and what a beautiful um practice to have really because yeah like you said I think it can get very overwhelming seeing you know the amount of news and just things we're bombarded with that you know our nervous systems aren't really made to deal Mm. with on this global scale but equally you know we can't spiritually bypass them we can't Mm. we can't just turn a blind eye either so yeah like you said having that that practice and those those boundaries and understanding that actually you need to kind of be in a certain headspace and and focus on yourself first before you can kind of give to the rest of the world and you know Mm. to the people around you um because yeah I guess it's like you know you've got to put your own um air mask on before you put um someone else's as they say (laughs) on the plane uh, or whatever the saying uh however it goes um so yeah it's so so important um and I can really relate to kind of like you know doing it in the morning that's something that I do as well I have my kind of own practices that I need to or I like to do in the morning. And I notice when I don't do them for a few days, you know, because we all mm. have times when we're out of routine, like I can really notice the difference in myself and kind of how my day unfolds. Do you find a, a similar thing? Absolutely. Um, I I find when I don't take this time to connect to God, to connect to the universe, I don't have that same sense of calm, that same sense of perhaps being able to have that space where I can then respond instead of just react. Mm. Um, And so I understand the importance of this practice for myself because I see it for myself. Um, And I I believe it's Yoga Sutra 1.14 or 1.15. And in it, And the translation that I have is by Swami Sachananda. In that translation, it was talking about um, a student comes to a teacher and says, can you give me a technique? Like, I'm so angry all the time. Like, I need peace. And the teacher says, okay, like, practice this. The student practices once, comes back. He's like, I'm so angry. I'm so this. And the teacher is like, you have to keep practicing. (laughs) You know, sometimes it can take lifetimes depending on, like, Um, our karma and those kinds of things. And I think that's where that devotion comes in is it's that consistent practice where you really start to see the changes and the differences in how you view the world, like um, how much of that ignorance is slowly starting to dissipate away so you can see the world as it truly is. Um, And so for me, I feel like it's my practice of in the morning of taking the time to like clean my mind to clean my mind, to like weed out, like say the negative seeds in the garden of my mind. So I'm able to go out into the world with a little bit more compassion, a little bit more self-awareness, greater perspective of the world. So that, and this actually happened to me two days ago, like when someone is rude to you, I, all my clients are extremely lovely, so beautiful. And I had one person that, and there's a reason I work with folks of color there. I, I find them to be, um, and this is a severe generalization, but most of the clients I work with are so lovely, but I had one in particular that was very rude and did not have really any respect for my time and energy. And I was thinking about if I didn't have my practices of being able to, in that moment, to come back to my breath, to anchor to the present moment. In the past, I have gotten very angry. And sometimes that anger can be self-destructive. 
Um, so we want to be able to have these practices to emotionally bolster ourselves for things. So when things like that happen, it doesn't hurt us as much. I'm still going to hurt. We're still human, you know, like the anger is still going to come. But do we have the tools to actually sit down, address it and come back to that place of home of self? Mm, yeah. And to be able to sit with those big emotions like anger mm. and and them not like get stuck in our body. Right. Mm. Which which so often happens. Um, yeah. And, you know, that's where Ranayam can be so powerful to help us get get those kind of stuck emotions, so to speak, out. Mm. I love the way that you describe like your sadhana and you just talk about yoga in general. And I think, I mean, if I was someone who didn't know anything about yoga and was listening, I'd be like, oh my gosh, I need to do this. This sounds amazing. Like, <laughs> why isn't this what everyone's saying? Because, mm. you know, typically as as you kind of touched on, um, I think earlier, you know, when we think about yoga, we think of, well, a white woman, able-bodied, thin, mm on their yoga mat, wearing their Lululemon, et cetera, et cetera, um, doing their poses and postures. Whereas as you've described, there's so, so much more to yoga. Um, and one of those is of course the eight limbs of yoga um, as mm. outlined by Patanjali in the Yoga Sutras. Um, so it'd be great to kind of touch on, I guess, a few of those. I mean, if I would love to be able to speak to you about all of them. We'd be we'd be here for a really long time. Um, but yeah, maybe just a couple, perhaps Branayam, because, you know, you're doing your Branayam Sadhana at the moment um, and a couple of others that would be amazing to kind of, yeah, explore them a little bit further and, and how we can use them. Because, of course, asanas and the poses, the postures are one of those sutras and that's relatively well known um but yeah what um what else is there and how can we incorporate them into our practice absolutely so the eight limbs of yoga this eightfold path as laid out by patanjali is a path and a system that teaches us how to live a meaningful life a purposeful life and what i find um and one of my teachers, Prashad Rangangar, um, was talking about how in yoga, nothing is by accident. Um, so even like the way that the eight limbs are laid out, it's with purpose. And what I find very interesting, um, not interesting and very important is that the first two are the yamas and the niyamas. Um, and how many students' introductions into yoga is just straight into asana, the third limb instead of understanding what is our, what are social ethics? What is the personal conduct that we have with ourselves? Um, Prashad also talks about how when we are a yoga practitioner, a sadaka, a seeker, a teacher, what's most important is what is our ethical guideline? What is our moral guideline? Like, how are we conducting ourselves with, with ourselves, with those around us? And that's where the understanding of the yamas and the niyamas come in. So the yamas being the ahimsa, nonviolence, um, satya, truthfulness, asteya, non-stealing, um, brahmacharya. And Vic, my other teacher, Vikram, was talking about... Um, at the time, like when yoga was 
was created, laid out during that time of like Patanjali, it was for celibate Brahmin men. So Brahmacharya from that understanding of being celibate um, in a more other perspectives, traditions, it's that moderation, that conservation of energy. The fifth yama being the um, apahigraha is not grasping or wanting things that are not ours, perhaps that generosity. And um, when I think about being a yoga practitioner teacher myself is how do I keep coming back to, say, nonviolence? How do I keep coming back to practicing nonviolence with myself? And something I talk about quite often in the practice of meditation, in the practice of like pranayama, is cultivating an inner kind voice. And in meditation for me, it's when we notice our mind has wandered, a thought is coming instead of being like, oh, I'm so bad. I'm so, why can't I control my mind? I did it again. I'm a bad meditator. And it's like, <laughs> no. Instead, it's that, okay, the mind has wandered. The awareness has been built with grace and compassion. We bring the mind back to the breath. You know, it's a pattern and it's an opportunity. So every time the mind has wandered, we've built that awareness. Oh, hey, my mind has wandered. Let me with that grace and compassion, with that kindness for myself, bring the mind back to the breath, say in the pranayama, in meditation. And for me, what a beautiful practice of nonviolence where we're not berating ourselves. Um, there's enough people external to us that would be ready to berate us or say negative things out of their own like self-hatred or whatever might be going on. So what we can really do is practice that kindness, that nonviolence with ourselves. Um, and then when we think about the niyamas is our personal practices. So do we have that saucha, which is the cleanliness, but not just cleanliness of our physical body, but of our mind. My teacher Vikram, Vikram G also talks about in the practice of meditation, how are we like cleaning the window, the mirror of our mind in the practice of meditation? So that when we are, say, looking at a particular situation, it's not cloudy. Like we can actually see the truth of what the situation is because we have a clear window that we're looking through. And the same thing, we have a clear mirror so we see ourselves clearly. And there's no distortion. There's no like delusion there. Um, and then moving into Santosha, that contentment, which um, years ago working with my therapist, I kept saying, contentment, but complacency that I don't understand what's the difference between them. I feel like I'm not continually progressing and doing that I'm complacent. And I was like, wow, our Western society, the sense of productivity made me feel like I always had to be going. I always mm. had to be progressing. Like for me, I thought contentment was complacency. And I think that was the biggest like eye-opening moment for me work in that work with my therapist when I realized like I can just sit down and enjoy an episode of Netflix and I don't need to feel guilty. And it's these small things that our eyes open up to and we realize like we're just here to be. 
to just enjoy life. But with the conditioning of our society, perhaps the way that we were raised, that sense of contentment can be like very hard to, maybe easy to understand intellectually, but then to experientially practice. Um, And before I touch on the other niyamas, yoga is a experiential practice. It is not something to just intellectually understand. It is something that, okay, first we intellectually understand, but then how do we then practice it for ourselves to really feel it? Um, And then the niyamas, we have the tapas, which is that like personal discipline, that fire. Um, And then swadhyaya, which is self-study. Self-study also like reading scriptures. So reading, say, like the Yoga Sutras, reading the Bhagavad Gita, um, for me, like reading the Japji Sab and Sikhism. Um, and the last one would be that Ishvara Pradhana, um, which is that surrender to God, which is that surrender to, I'm not always in control. And actually, thank God, <laughs> because there's so many beautiful things that have come into my life because I'm not the one that controlled it. Um, And there is a higher power. There is something else that is maybe working at the fabrics of all these things. And like, how can I surrender? How can I trust? Mm, Thank you so much for giving us a little overview of those. And I mean, there's so much um, that I want to touch on. And hopefully I can remember most of the points, but the the mirror analogy, I love that. I think that's going to help so many people. Um, and yeah, it's, um, I mean, you know, when we're meditating and we, you know, our mind wanders and we notice, like I always say to my students, like that is the work, like that is, mm. that's amazing that you've noticed. Cause like you said, you've built that awareness, mm. but you know, the way that meditation is kind of shown in the world, the Western world specifically is that, you know, there's someone sat under a tree, eyes closed, you know, uh, legs folded and uh, legs crossed rather and uh, you know uh, they're not thinking they think that yeah you've just kind of gone into this alternate mm-hmm. world um but obviously that's that's not what happens because our brains love to be thinking all the time um and also the progressive the always wanting to be progressing like I always I said remember saying this to my mum and my aunt when I was quite young and they laughed at me but I think mm-hmm. it's so true like I was like, oh, my life's just a conveyor belt. I'm going to go to school, then I'm going to go to uni, then I'm going to get married, then I'm going to have a child. And then, and they were like, oh my God. And I was like, but that is, and get a job as well in there somewhere. But, you know, we are just like, and Hmm. like productivity, like we always have to be productive. And I'm sure so many people listening will will kind of feel that guilt when they just sit down and do nothing. Hmm. Like, oh, what should I be doing right now instead? But actually- sometimes we just need to do nothing and we just need to rest. And and like you said, you know, we're here to just be. Um, and I think that's such a powerful, powerful act of, of resistance really to, mm. yeah, to just be in the moment and to, and also, you know, where we are right now is probably what we wished for like a year ago, but because we're so busy wishing for the next thing, mm-hmm. we don't even realize that, you know, once upon a time this is what we thought would make us happy but suddenly (laughs) we're wishing for the next five things um and such is the joy of capitalism (laughs) (laughs) yeah no I um 
completely resonate with what you're saying. And um, there was a piece around the meditation. I was at the Shivananda Ashram in Kerala a few um, a few weeks ago now, and the way that they were talking about meditation, I found really interesting. Um, so sh- the teacher was talking about how we lay out all the conditions so that we enter into the state of meditation. So it's not, so when we're sitting down, say like in a quiet place, in a clean place, perhaps in the same place we always meditate in to create that frequency of meditation. Um, and we sit down, like perhaps we've done some asana beforehand so our body's comfortable, it's ready to have a seat. We close down our eyes and perhaps if it's, um, say we're doing a mindfulness meditation, so we're bringing the awareness to breath. So those are all the steps, all the things that we do to then enter into meditation. Um, and then it's like maybe we'll have those few moments of um, entering into dhyana, entering into meditation where there maybe there is nothing there or we connect into the self and those little moments. But it's like we're creating all these different steps so we enter into the state of meditation. Um, And what I also find interesting when people are like, oh, I just need to sit down and like all the things are going to go away. Like there's so many different styles of meditation. And again, what my teacher Vikram was talking about um, in – Vedic meditation, for example, it's like actually contemplating an idea. So what he had, what he did with me, he was like, okay, what are you thinking about? And at that, at the, actually at that particular time, I had a, something I was struggling with, a choice. I didn't know which way, like what choice I should make. He's like, okay, so let's do a meditation, a Vedic meditation, where first think about the question that you have and then meditation, just like drop in, drop in, and then hopefully an answer should come out. And it's interesting in that in that meditation, it wasn't so like there was definitely finding that stillness because there's that chatter, the chatter of the mind. And sometimes it's like, where are the thoughts even coming from? Are these even my thoughts? Like, what is this noise in my head? Um, and it's like finding enough stillness where perhaps another voice is going to come in. Maybe it's the voice in the self the voice of our wisdom, the voice of God that directly nudges you towards the path that you should be on. But it's like creating enough stillness to allow that voice to actually enter in. Um, so I do actually, I, I do resonate with you sharing how some people are like, oh, you sit there and there's like nothing. And I'm like, yeah, maybe that's when we reach Samadhi. You know, yeah, that right. Bliss, we've connected. <laughs> Who knows how many lifetimes that's going to take. And, you know, we'll, we'll have small moments here and there of that bliss, of that pure, like, connection. Mm. Um, but, yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I know, like, when I went to India to do my um, yoga teacher training and they explained kind of the later limbs. So um, the dharana and the dhyana. Mm. And it clicked because I realized that what we call meditation in the West is actually dharana because that means concentration. So Mm. whereas, like you said, meditation is a state of being and is, you know, just like one step below enlightenment or Mm. or samadhi or moksha, whatever you want to call it. And that was like, 
oh, but because we're using the word meditation, you know, it's a little bit like yoga, like yoga is a verb and it's a noun, but meditation is kind of a verb and a noun, right? So Mm. you do one to reach one. And I think that can be really, really confusing um, for people to get their head around, like me included. Um, So yeah, I think, I guess that's why it's so important, right? To understand kind of the history and the context behind these practices. Mm. So for yoga to really understand the eight limbs and and to dig deeper into them because having that language and that understanding then enables you to, to have that kind of, you know, like you said, the intellectual versus the experiential um, side of things. You know, you need, you need both. Mm. Um, and it's very easy to sit here and say, oh yeah, you know, this is, these are all the things you need to do. But obviously you also, to, to actually do them, is certainly more difficult than to talk about them. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Mm. Okay, so um, yoga, the eight limbs, we've kind of touched upon them a little bit. Um, and in many ways, yoga has been colonized completely and whitewashed and, and all the things and capitalized. Um, so what are, I guess, some of the ways that you have seen um, yoga be colonized or you've experienced this kind of colonization of of yoga in your experience? Mm. When we think about perhaps the original colonization of yoga was in India when the British colonized. Um, So when the British colonized India, um, they banned yoga. They banned Mm. these spiritual practices. And in this colonization of India by the British, it was taking away of not only their ability to practice these spiritual practices, to practice yoga, but the taking away of the land, taking away of culture, of customs, um, taking away of languages, taking away of like the clothes and taking away of history of education, taking away of self-identity. Um, and we we can see through the history of yoga, like what what changed a little bit around that time then when it was reintroduced was seeing then asana being kind of plucked out of yoga and that being what was accepted, the more like, I guess, gymnastics portion being what was then propagated, brought over to the West. Um, And so that was the original colonization of, by the British, of it being banned. And we see like the understanding of what yoga is changing because that's when we start to see that yoga equals asana which equals exercise Mm. Um, instead of the understanding of yoga being this spiritual practice this body of knowledge this body of tools um, originating from the indian subcontinent that has a very specific goal of moksha of liberation, of nirvana, of the ending of suffering. Um, And so that's that's then I think how we see what yoga is now in the West where people still equate yoga equals exercise. Um, And then we start to see it being 
culturally appropriated by seeing things like statues of Ganesh, like in bathrooms mm. of yoga studios, like on the floor where we're practicing, like for us knowing you never even put your feet towards um, any like gurus or any like um, deities or statues of gods or goddesses. Um, and so we have this reverence. We know um, we start to see things like, um, I guess, like folk saying namaste, just equating that namaste equals yoga, not knowing namaste is a greeting in India. Um, and it's so interesting to me, like being in classes, when at the end, people just like shout namaste when the class ends. And I'm just like, oh, goodness. And it just like makes me feel kind of strange. Um, what else we see in terms of this cultural appropriation and the colonization, the commodification is also when things start to become like trademarked and copyrighted, because then we're starting to assume this like sole ownership versus like collective ownership. Yoga is a practice, a spiritual practice, a path that can take lifetimes that is not supposed to be owned by anybody. So how can you trademark something? How can it become your practice? It's meant for everybody on with any body type, with being in any part of the world. Um, and I think what we're also seeing is like making profit off yoga, making profit off of like, this is what yoga is. Um, and when I think about how do we actually appreciate instead of appropriate yoga and this practice is as teachers, as practitioners, remembering the original intention of yoga and connecting with your teachers, with the tradition, um, for me as a teacher, it's continually weaving the ethos, the reverence into my own practice, into my own narrative when I am sharing about yoga. It's like, how do I have so much reverence that we that I get to practice, that I get to share? Um, and I think it's also keeping that sadhana really high for myself because yoga is not a self-serving path. Um Yoga is a way for us to dissolve our ego. But what I see in the West is yoga as something to become a yoga influencer, to sell clothes in the name of yoga, to wear a mala bead. Um, it's, it feels like sometimes people are using it as a costume. And even for some teachers, it's a career. And then you go back into your life just behaving as you normally do. And it's like, how do we understand yoga to be this lifestyle and this practice that's practiced by so many people in India in a different way where it's their spiritual practice, it's their way to connect and to see the way it's just like parts of it just picked and choose that are easy to be ca like capitalized, really like focused on in the West, like makes me sad. And I think that's one reason we were talking about this earlier I've been teaching now for four years and I only taught at studios for six months. Um, and I was like, this is not for me. Like I, I can't be in these spaces where I feel sometimes tokenized, where I feel like I need to teach yoga in a way where it's only exercise. And I can't speak to like, what is our self? 
um, what are the different limbs of yoga? Like, why do we practice so that we can become better humans to better serve the collective and like serve one another? Um, I'm trying to think if there's anything else I wanted to, I mean, there's so much here that I can um, talk about, but what I'll, what I'll leave here is when we think about wanting to honor the roots of yoga, it's like actually talking about what are the roots of yoga? Where did it come from? What is the history? Um, and then also learning from South Asian teachers. How can we uplift South Asian teachers that have been practicing this their entire life, who have parents, family that have been practicing this, that it's within their like ancestral cultural roots. How can we uplift those folks? Um, and that's something being the co-founder of the Woman of Color Summit that we do, where it's like, how can we uplift the folks of color where it's their ancestral cultural spiritual practices? Um, but in the West, like, that's they're not being uplifted. They're not being heard. There's no community. There's no spaces for things like this. Um, so how do we create that? And that's something that um, we try to do with the Women of Color Summit. Mm, yeah, tell us more about um, the Women of Color Summit and I guess what, well, you kind of touched on why you co-founded it. Um, but yeah, what? how can people get involved? How can they, yeah, support support you guys? Absolutely. Um, so I realized like my brain, my mind had a little like, ooh, something. So I actually had a quote that I wanted to share. It's from Sunny Singh. I think his like online alias is like Brooklyn Vala. Um, but this quote that he, the reason that he was um, speaking about this is, I think it was Gucci that started marketing turbans um, that like had turbans that they were selling that were like $800. And so he's talking about cultural appropriation in respect to that, but it's the same thing for yoga. It's the same thing for any of these things. So I'm going to read this quote and then I'll go back to talking to Women of Color Summit if that's okay. Yeah, of course. Please okay. share. Um, so the thing about cultural appropriation is that the appropriator does not have to face the same consequences that we do for practicing our culture or faith. For them, it is an, assess it is an assessor accessory that can be taken on or off at will, while for us, it is a way of life. I'm not saying cultural or religious garb or practices should not be shared. Culture never exists in a vacuum and is never pure, nor should it be. It is ever changing, evolving, growing, but in a society where immigrants and communities of color are marginalized at every level, we can't pretend that power relations do not exist when we have this conversation about appropriation. Sharing and exchanging cultural and spiritual practices is great, but it gets more complicated when we're not all on equal footing. It gets more complicated when meaningful things are taken commodified and exploded, exploited for a profit with little respect shown to the community they were taken from. Mm, that gives me shivers. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, I, when I read this, it, I feel like it's so succinctly encompassed why folks of color feel so enraged 
when we see things like colonization, culture appropriation happening, because there are power dynamics at play. Um, and there's this feeling of a little bit of, I mean, a lot of disrespect in a sense and, and not honoring. Um, so when, as soon as I read that, I was like, oh, I want to share that in this podcast. Um, so thank you, Sunny Singh, <laughs> for actually <laughs> writing that and then giving me this chance to read it out. Thank you so much. And yeah, I mean, you're so right. And I think, especially like growing up, I think when you're, you know, a child, a teenager, as a person of color, you, you don't really understand this like power dynamic, like you can feel it, mm. but you can't verbalize it. And to be honest, I don't think I could verbalize a lot of this stuff till a few, like a couple of years ago. Mm. Um, yeah, like it's quite recent, I think for me, like my eyes were suddenly opened and I was like, oh gosh, mm. like, so yeah, then, you know, you kind of have to unpack it all and, and yeah, really understand, you know, because like you said, like you feel this outrage, but you can't understand why, you know, you see people mm. wearing bindis or you see people, you know, they've got like Ganeshji on their tops or, you know, their yoga mats have got the Orm sign on and you're mm. like, mm, you really shouldn't be standing on that. Like that's so disrespectful. Mm. Um, but then you, you know, you, there's a part of you that feels like sometimes you can't speak up or, you know, you don't feel safe to. And obviously, you know, we, we have to think about our safety first. We can't just always be saying these things. You know, it's I guess it's easier to do online. Um, it's a little bit safer, I guess, from your home. But when you're like face to face, it, it can be really difficult. Yeah. And I think that's exactly why we created the Woman of Color Summit. Like we wanted to create these like safe, brave spaces where folks of color could come together to share about these situations and experiences that were so triggering. And at times, perhaps when you try to bring it up to the person, you were gaslit or it was like, oh, this isn't a problem or we'll do something about it. Nothing gets done. And then you just feel so unsafe or perhaps they make you feel worse. So for us, it was like, how do we create these communities, these spaces where people can share about their experiences and who they're sharing to completely gets it? There doesn't have to be this whole like history and introduction and explaining yourself. Like it's just the other person's just like, oh my God, the same thing happened to me. And then we start to start to get to put language to these experiences. And I think that's where things are slowly starting to change, where this conversation is more prominent. We are talking about decolonizing yoga. We are talking about how do we like appreciate instead of appropriate, instead of being appropriative of these practices. Um, and for the Women of Color Summit, we have um, we've done two annual summits, the first one being the art of creative living, the second one, the art of authentic living. Um, and for us, it was all about creating community, these safe, brave spaces, but also how do we uplift folks of color that are doing this work in yoga, in traditional Chinese medicine, in Reiki, in African spirituality, and they have this cultural ancestral connection and how do we uplift those people so that they are getting more airtime, that they are being seen and represented, but then also for any other students that are wanting to connect and just feel lost, don't feel safe in these white spaces. They're like, oh, that's my teacher. Like, that's who I've been waiting for. I've been waiting for this community. Um, 
So that's what we do at the Women of Color Summit. We've had two annual summits. We're working on our third one now. We've had two group programs um, that were called Deepening Your Spiritual Practice and Community. Um, we have podcast seasons, too, right now. Um, and it's been so just very healing where people are able to hold space for their anger, hold space for their grief, um, realizing that perhaps in this in this process of assimilation, in this process of trying to remain safe, how much was lost, how much had to be buried, and how can we hold space for that so we can reclaim um, and celebrate these traditions and like being raised in these ways um, and reclaim that for ourselves. Mm, that sounds amazing. Um, and I'll definitely look out for the next one. When will it be the third one? We are tentatively working on it being end of this year. Okay. So about winter 2022. Um, we'll see if things change or not, but that's tentatively what we're working towards. Yeah. And we also had a in-person retreat um, at the end of last year. So we are looking to have more in-person um, get-togethers, retreats as well. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. I think those spaces are so needed. Um, so yeah congratulations on on that because that's yeah really really amazing thank you okay well um I mean I could speak to you all day I feel like I say this to all my guests and there's always so much more that um we could unpack um but thank you so much for your time it's been so wonderful to listen to you and I've learned so much and you know you were able to share things so beautifully and eloquently and and in a way that I think will either reignite people's kind of love for yoga and, you know, the true yoga or make them want to learn more, um, which, mm. you know, both are so powerful. So thank you so much. Um, where can people connect with you? Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for having me on. Um, it was so, and I, I think this is the power of being given the space of like being given the mic because we get to share about our experience um, and to give a chance for other people to be able to resonate. Um, so thank you so much for creating this platform for people like us to be able to talk about these things and um, create more conversations and conversations around change as well. So if people want to find me, they can find me on my website, harpenderman.com across um, Facebook and Instagram. I'm Harpenderman Yoga. Um, I do work with folks one-on-one. -on -one. So if you're wanting to deepen your own understanding practice of yoga through all eight limbs, um, or if you are, say, a newer yoga teacher looking for a mentor, I also offer yoga mentorships. Um, and yeah, so if you're any one of those people, please feel free to reach out. I would love to connect. Um, and thank you so much for anyone who made it to the end of this episode. <laughs> that we're appreciative of you. Thank you so much, Hopinda. And I hope to speak to you again soon. I do 